linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, as you know, I'm about ready to head up north for the fourth uh, almost annual symbiosis gathering. And uh, I've been working on my talk and getting ready for the trip, and so I hadn't really planned on doing another podcast until I got back. But uh, some of our fellow saloners have convinced me that uh, maybe I shouldn't be such a slacker and uh, get one more podcast out before I left. And those fellow saloners are PDM Podcast. And uh, PDM Podcast, uh, I think you maybe accidentally checked the uh, donation button more than once. So I uh, refunded one of your uh, two identical donations. I hope you don't think that I'm uh, not grateful, but uh, I also don't want to take advantage of a possible computer mishap, which is uh, what I suspect happened. And uh, also we received donations from Roger B., Star B., and Nikolai R., all of whom uh, made generous donations to help offset the expenses of the salon. So thank you all ever so much for your kind help. It is very much appreciated. And on top of that... We also received donations from Sam B. and uh, my old grandfather friend, Robert O. Uh, And they were way over the top. Uh, You guys really shouldn't have, uh, but I have to admit that your generosity came at a very good time. So thank you again, and uh, a big thank you to all of our fellow saloners who are helping us to spread these ideas in uh, whatever way they can. And uh, I should add that uh, some of these donors are also regular contributors to the salon uh, over a long period of time. So uh, your long-term support is uh, something I treasure greatly. Now let's uh, get on with today's talk, which comes from a collection of Terrence's lectures that he had on cassette tape and passed along to some friends of mine for safekeeping. And while I think that uh, this talk is most likely out there on the net under several titles... The only thing I can say for sure uh, about it is that this tape was titled uh, McNature on the tape, and uh, I don't know if that was uh, Terrence's idea or just the uh, name my friends gave the file after they digitized the tape, because uh, he uses a different title in the talk, as uh, you'll hear in just a minute. So let's give it a listen right now, and uh, yes, there is uh, one little break in the talk where the person making the recording must have uh, had to turn the tape over or something, but I don't think we'll miss much, so uh, here is Terrence McKenna. Formal title of the lecture is Nature is the Center of the Mandala. And this is really basically simply a, uh, a structure to work off of to anticipate and discuss where nature lies in the future, the cultural future that is unfolding in front of all of us. And uh, these times spent, and then of course there were the times in the Amazon, which most of you have heard me lecture on, where the pursuit of psychedelic plants was really in the forefront. But uh, I came to see nature as experienced 
meaning as it hits you when you walk around in it and pick at it and carry it with you, that this kind of nature had been read out of uh, the repertoire of images that most people bring to bear on their reality. And consequently, the reality is uh, de-spirited. The, the spirit resident in nature is not visible when these mechanistic grids are laid over it. It's sort of by a kind of anticipatory osmosis, we called our company, which has existed now 10 years or more, Lux Natura. Lux Natura means the light in nature. The Lux Natura is the salvational radiance that can be found in the organic kingdom. It's a term of Paracelsus. And it has slipped from the grip of modern human beings, except in case special cases, where it is cultivated as in a uh, sensitivity, or where it is pursued in the guise of an aspect of the psychedelic experience. So what is nature and what's so great about it that it should be the center of the mandala well it seems to me that it is uh, psyche in a way that has become occluded by the perverse development of language so that what we take to be exterior to ourselves and sustained by the laws of physics which do not arise out of the human mind is in fact not that at all but a kind of stratum of expectation that has been laid down by the human journey through time now granted there are aspects of nature which are not part of the human journey through time but they are a cult from our point of view. They are not expressed except perhaps through the demonic artifice of an instrumentality. And this has been the, um, the course, the, the uh, strategy of science is to use an instrumentality to reveal the mechanics of the occult side of nature. The problem is that this occult side of nature once um, explicated, does not yield a satisfying reflection of ourselves. It yields instead a very unflattering reflection of ourselves, if any at all. So, you know, in Hawaii, sitting on the mountainside, you think that you are like Lenin in Germany or something, and you have to politically think it all through so that uh, to whatever degree one's voice is heard, mistakes are not made. Because it seems to me clear that a small miracle is taking place. It is that, and I was saying this to, uh, to Roy today, it is that our point of view is actually gaining ground the thing which we least expected to happen, I think, that 
all this new age hustle and bustle, though granted that 95% of it is just intellectual noise and efforts to, that fail, efforts to coin the perfect analogy that fail, nevertheless, there is a residual 5% that appears to have become the cutting edge of the guiding image of this megaculture. Um, so it becomes important then for people who identify themselves with uh, the human potential movement, spiritual development, the rebirth of intuition, all of these things, to make a place in the plan for the role of nature. And different responses have gone on to that. The Gaia response, which claims nature as a stabilizing feminine force, which I'm, I'm all for that. I think that's definitely the image that has to emerge, that the, the recognition of the presence of control mechanisms, which are not coercive, but which are Taoistic, is a way of coming to terms with nature that we have resisted. This is, you know, it's a simple idea. It's just the idea that before technology, uh, people had to store firewood for in the autumn for the winter and in the spring they had to sharpen tools for the late spring planting and this sort of thing that there was an implicit rhythm laid down by nature that entered the human cosmos at every level and then was reflected in the poetry the culture building the language revolution etc and that when urbanization, um, other factors uh, removed the influence of these rhythms, ending in the final culmination of the, the modern city where life under electric light goes on 24 hours a day, there's then a flattening of the human dimension. There is no more a sense of being embedded in flux. There is instead the myth of the eternal culture. It's like Woody Allen, you know, his comment that he didn't like to go to the country because you see all these screen doors with cobwebs in the corner. Well, <clears throat> you've got to come to terms with this kind of thing. <laughs> because... Um, there is no question that, that there is a deepening ambiguity in the present moment. There is a something stealing over global civilization. I was at a conference recently where someone proposed the notion that our time is not special, that there is nothing unique about this moment other than that it is presently occurring. I think nothing could be further from the truth and that actually uh, the deepening ambiguity of the historical experience which registers in all of us as a sense of how weird it is, how compressed time is, how complicated the interconnections are, is a real phenomenon which eventually will be elucidated. In other words, it will be recognized as a phenomenon eventually 
there is going to be a break with the, with the prevailing paradigm of historical process. In case you're not aware of it, the prevailing paradigm of historical process is, descri- is the one which calls itself the trendlessly fluctuating theory. <laughs> and it says, we trendlessly fluctuate. And to search for a trend is to just be drawn into a kind of cultural hysteria. The fact of the matter is that uh, standing outside the cultural hysteria, the trend is fairly clear. It is a trend toward temporal uh, compression and the emergence of ambiguity. How is it possible? You know, you look at something like Common Ground or even the Shared Visions newsletter, and you say, you know, apparently the major commodity moving on world markets is ambiguity. The voices which whisper to us from crystals, herbs, and housewives, the, uh, the invisible fields from all dimensions which impinge upon us, the imagined histories and futures which intersect the present moment. I mean, uh, if all of these models or even a small portion of them are given credence, then the density of the human experience is... Uh, is uh, considerably deepened. I mean, how many past lives can you keep track of? How many extraterrestrial channels can you have open before you begin to realize that, you know, you're not living in the kind of society like mom and dad were used to? (laughs) So, back to the theme of nature. Nature anticipates all of this and anchors it. Nature is actually the goal at the end of history. We're getting closer and closer to the end of history, and we will not go past it with a moment of blindness. It is, there will be vouchsafe intuitions about the emerging structure of the other into which culture is being subsumed. You're all familiar with the image of the Ouroboros, the snake which takes its tail in its mouth. Well, the end of history, which you've heard me talk about as, uh, as uh, an archaic revival, is, that's true, an archaic revival, but <clears throat> the, the ground of being in which the original archaic renaissance occurred was nature. So in terms of the expression of design elements, in terms of the expression of human relationships, political agendas, uh, all of these things, the economies of nature are going to set the guiding images. It's very interesting. I uh, read Stephen Jay Gould's book, uh, Biophilia, in which he describes his work with ants in Suriname and how... um, there are ants uh, which grow fungi in their nests. They chew up, they cut leaves off trees and chew them up into this mash, <clears throat> which they then store in rooms underground, and they bring the right spores to it and grow it there, and, uh, and it produces a sugar which the ants then eat, and they tend the fungal gardens, they actually remove 
foreign spores and this sort of thing, and the whole symbiosis goes on. Well, it's a symbiosis between a social organism, the ant, and uh, a fungal organism which is able to provide an enzyme, sugar, which drives the ant society to a greater state of activity. Activity being the bottom line in an insect economy where how much you can get done determines your how well you survive provided the triodes of getting done are well established. Well, this provides a curious analogy to the situation that exists in human societies vis-a-vis hallucinogenic plants. Hallucinogenic plants uh, act as enzymes which stimulate imagination. And imagination, having a practical side to itself, is usually reconnected to this process in a feedback loop that asks the question, how can we make more of the hallucinogenic plant which is giving us all these great ideas? So then you get uh, initially the invention of agriculture. And, but one can't grow all plants in one place as we learned even about Hawaii. So then uh, the, the feedback loop in the imagination driven by the presence of the hallucinogen in the diet asks the question, how can we get the plants that we can't grow? And the answer is networks of trade and systems of barter. And behind that lies the need for language, similar sorts of things. These kinds of symbiotic processes are implicit in the human experience. Some of you have heard uh, another lecture I give which goes into this in great detail where I actually try to show that the presence of uh, mushrooms in the dung of ungulate animals on the veldt of Africa 150,000 years ago drove a set of processes which resulted in self-reflecting human beings. I won't recapitulate that now except to say that that process didn't end with the invention of language or the domestication of cattle. It, it continues right up until the present day, it really is as though uh, from a planetary point of view, what has happened is an enzyme system called the human species was deputized into an information gathering mode sent out as a kind of prodigal subsystem a kind of episome of the social environment to cognize the organization of the natural world through a process called human history or the historical advance of understanding toward uh, sufficiently complete modeling of the ground that the that closure could occur. And that is now, I think, what is happening, that the human species, which was deputized for Gaia into the fall, the fall into profane time, the time of non-participation in the immediacy of the Tao, through a series 
of successive linguistic declensions. That's what it was. I mean, this begins to sound almost biblical, because what we're saying is there's a fall, and then, and the fall is somehow related to a confusion of languages, not one from another, but from the object of experience. And as the language became less and less natural, the world of the species using this language became less and less natural because the evolution of symbols became toward the abs moved toward the abstract, became the realization of ideals. Notice that as early as, uh, as Platonic philosophy, and I'm not sure, well, no, even in pre-Socratic philosophy, you get the enunciation of abstractions, great overweening concepts which subsume large sets of particulars underneath them. And this, this ability to subsume the particulars under a name, which is a class name, is the beginning of this process of replacing the natural language with the symbolic structures that then interfere between uh, soul and nature. The reason for, for this process, we can really only guess at. It seems as though nature requires this reflection upon itself, that the completion of nature is somehow in the hands of a single target species, which acts as an enzyme within the global, uh, the global organism of Gaia. From the point of view of an extraterrestrial looking down on the surface of the planet, there are not uh, discrete organisms. There is simply a gene swarm, and through transmission of viruses and numerous uh, non-genetic ways in which genes are transformed, the previously imagined sharp declensions between species are actually somewhat illusory. So that really, uh, within the confines of my body, the unfolding of gene expression and the molecular assembly of enzyme systems and proteins and that sort of thing is simply under a tighter regimen of control than are the same kind of processes which are going on between people. We are really a loosely regulated organism that has a tendency to uh, ever tighten the control between its subunits so that you can see the evolution of language, the evolution of technology, and its being at the service of media, uh, the rise of cities, uh, the oral poetry, all of these things, we seem to strive for greater and greater cohesion, greater and greater free flow of thought among ourselves. And uh, what we're looking toward is a moment when the artificial language structures which bind us within the notion of ourselves are dissolved in the presence of the realization that we are a part of nature. And when that happens, uh, the childhood of our species will pass away, and we will stand tremulously on uh, the brink of really the first moments 
of coherent human civilization. And when that happens, the noise which haunts our social systems, our inability to couple things together so that they work, will begin to evaporate. This, I think, is already beginning to happen. Uh, it's a slow process, but it's a, a kind of cascading phenomenon such that once it begins to happen, it happens faster and faster. And uh, the mirroring of psyche that was always the glamour, if you will, which stood behind nature is correctly perceived with greater and greater clarity as this process proceeds. And this correct perceiving of, of nature's relationship to self and language is the essence of all of these cultural vectors that are converging. Feminism, the exploration of space, the uh, perfection of the thinking machine or of the human machine interface, um, the mysterium tremendum at the core of the psychedelic experience. All of these things are, I think, going to be seen as anticipations of this post-historical state which lies beyond um, the, uh, the working out of the themes that have been set in motion by materialistic science. In other words, the forces that are being set in motion and sustained by so-called new thought, new age thinking. This is why, because this seems to be happening, because it seems that we, and by we I mean all of us, did in fact identify early on a trend in society which is now going to have enormous repercussions that uh, there is a responsibility to clear thinking about what this thing is and how it works. There seems to be a kind of a rush to get in line with the sloppiest metaphor as quickly as possible so that, you know, and there have been a number of let's say, syncretic faiths or new myths that have arisen uh, and competed with each other with greater and lesser uh, degrees of success. I suppose this is a healthy thing, except that it gives such comfort to the people who think we're all airheads. You know, I mean, they observe all this and it confirms for them that uh, it's a hopeless lot. Nevertheless, um, So, so I guess what I want to say about that is that the, everybody has their own version of what is the mistake which is being made, right? So here's my version of what is the mistake that's being made. It's that there is a confusion between scientific materialism and reason. Science has set itself up as a kind of new pontificate and uh, Brooks, no challenge. It expects to uh, 
make judgment on any idea emerging from any realm of human endeavor. It has set itself up as judge and jury. The fact of the matter is that this is only by virtue of its spectacular acts of technological prestidigitation that it's able to uh, presume to do this. Because really what science is most successful about uh, uh, in telling us about are realms which none of us have ever penetrated nor are ever likely to. I mean, how much do you wish to know about the rings of Neptune or uh, the, the uh, quark? We are uh, continuously sold the line that somehow when the metaphors of consciousness are fully mapped onto quantum physics and biology, that there, a great step forward will have been taken. It seems to me that since the information coming out of quantum physics and molecular biology is so removed from the realm of common experience, that if we succeed in mapping mental phenomena onto those realms, we will have succeeded in the final act of alienation, because we will have at last totally removed our experience of ourselves from the realm of felt cognition. So I think that instead of the idea that there needs to be a kind of uh, erection of an overarching metaphor from the physical sciences into the social and psychiatric sciences, instead there should be the recognition and celebration of mystery that in fact we are an intelligent species caught in a historical process. No generation which preceded us knew what was going on. And there is no reason to assume that we know what's going on or that the generation which follows us will know what's going on. And what kind of trip is it anyway to insist on knowing what's going on? <laughs> it, it's a highly unlikely enterprise. I mean, look at the data sample. The data sample is your lifetime on one planet in one tiny corner of the universe. And from this, via the fallacy of induction, certain principles of uniformity are extended to the far-flung corners of the cosmos in space and time, then a bunch of fancy metaphors are built up that nobody can check on anyway. And then this is called understanding. You see, it isn't understanding. Understanding issues into appropriate activity. And, uh, you know, a model of the universe which doesn't issue into appropriate activity in the here and now is a curious model indeed. After all, appropriate activity in the here and now, I would think, would be the sine qua non. Everything else is um, unconfirmed rumor. So nature is the visible manifestation of this mystery. It entirely surrounds and completes us. It is there to be beheld and imbibed in. It is simply that one must either replace the sterile language of scientific materialism, 
or one must bring no language whatsoever to it so that it speaks for itself. I've noticed with ayahuasca, this South American visionary vine that's a hallucinogen, unlike the mushroom, it does not speak. It shows. Its language is visible. A fractal hieroglyphic surface of uh, intermediate dimensions that contains an endless unfolding of phenomena at level after level, apparently, you know, who knows, down into the microphysical realm. This is a correct seeing of what is. The, the mystery is co-present with its denial. It is a matter of changing points of view. And changing points of view is a matter of retooling language. If nature is psyche, then is the uh, auto-poetic, self-reflecting cloud of cognition that manifests as language. It is partly based in the structure of matter, it is partly based in the implicit syntax of the perceiver. It is partly an interference pattern between the two. But it is as close to the ground that one can approach without uh, theory. Which brings me then to uh, the last point that I want to make about this, which is... The key to the forward-looking expression of the archaic revival, the key to making the New Age fulfill its best hope and not fall into a kind of uh, crypto-fascism of paradigmatic warfare is to enunciate two principles which are really two ways of saying the same thing they are the primacy of experience and the toxic nature of ideology these this to me is the core and if if the new age the archaic revival whatever if it can exemplify these two principles we will navigate past the dangerous shoals that inevitably rip any social point of view that grows, that attempts to leave its cult status and enter the mainstream. Uh, the primacy of experience means, uh, I connect it to Heidegger's notion of what he called care for the project of being. The primacy of felt experience, it begins with a notion as simple as be here now but it takes that further and says, you know, we must take ourselves more seriously, more lightly and more seriously at the same time. We are not at the bottom of a pyramid of goods and information production where we pay the sucker's price for everything as it's handed down through a series of 
intractable pieces of cultural machinery that we have no effect on. That is the myth that is being promulgated by those very institutions. The myth of the hapless consumer, the myth of uh, the meaning of fadism, <laughs> that there is in fact a meaning to switching from one ideology to another ideology, the way uh, hemlines and perfumes and, uh, and decorator colors come and go. This kind of allowing ourselves to be self-victimized. You know, I mean, God forbid, I'm now at an age where three times in my life I've seen good ideas emerging on the fringes of American culture end up as slogans for Madison Avenue. You know, first with the beats, then with the hippies. I'll never forget the day I first confronted a billboard which talked about the Dodge Rebellion. I mean, rebellion was our word, not their word. And here they were, you know, our word selling this piece of tin junk. So, you know, the co-option that comes from disempowering yourself with regard to what you view as important. Which is more important to you, your opinion or, uh, or uh, Ted Koppel's opinion? It's got to be your opinion, you know, because these other things are just chimeras. They're, they're myths in the electronic night. The other side of that is the toxicity of ideology. That ideology itself is poisonous. That um, in the you know in the 15th and 16th century it was like 120 years of intermittent religious war because people were so uptight about whether or not you were a Catholic or a Huguenot or a Walloon or you know all this stuff which were these were life and death issues and finally people just became sick of it and uh, I. I hope, I choose to believe that we may be approaching such a watershed with the social ideologies that have just been dinging themselves into the global population for the past hundred years. They are extremely bankrupt. The notion of any kind of serious competition between uh, uh, Marxist-Leninism and capitalist uh, uh, democratic techno-fascism or whatever it is is ludicrous uh, neither system works in the presence of the need to wage ideological warfare against the other and yet it's fairly clear that each society could function quite well if it didn't have that burden and similarly in many microcosms of that situation around the world it's clear that ideology has become some kind of uh, anachronism. It's a kind of lack of good taste. It's like being a nut, you know, <laughs> so that you, you come on with some ideology and, and people just look at their plate. They're, <laughs> they're embarrassed for you. And well, they should be, because uh, that, that butter's no bread. That's just a big pain in the neck. Uh, 
the ideology which naturally claims our attention is uh, is pretty well understood. You know, it's like uh, it's like it says in the Old Testament: you can know the truth. The truth is the still small voice in your heart. We don't have to take courses in theology and ethics to get all this down. The political agenda is fairly clear. You know, you feed people, you cure disease, you anticipate and solve social problems having to do with sewage disposal, uh, distribution of land and wealth, so forth and so on. I mean, who's kidding who? None of this stuff is controversial unless you're living inside a locked ward, which we seem to be doing. So, uh, more and more, this anti-ideological position has to be articulated. It's no big deal about how you cause language to evolve. You cause language to evolve by saying new and intelligent things to each other. And then other people say, oh, well, so this thing that I've always thought but never felt like saying is actually legitimate and okay, and I can say it and I will say it, and then it begins to move like a wave through society. I mean, you will be told that uh, for me to advocate uh, the poisonous nature of ideology without calling it anarchy is to peddle my own private ideology. But this is absurd. It's like saying if someone tells you not to drive, that they're advocating a certain style of driving. That isn't it at all, you know? It's a translation of level. It, it's, uh, it's something entirely different. Both of these things, the toxic nature of ideology and the, uh, the importance of the felt presence of immediate experience, uh, can be brought together under the notion that we cannot afford the continued existence of what has been called throughout most of the 20th century the unconscious. That the unconscious is actually a kind of neurotic excuse for not getting our act together as a species. It is a kind of infantilism, a, a self, a giving of permission by each of us to all of us to not get our act together. And the, the way in which the unconscious is eliminated is by, the, by turning the language machinery back upon itself and reflecting on the process of attention. This is what Buddhism is all about. Attention to attention. Awareness of the modality of the cognitive process. Don't be fooled by yourself. Don't be made a sucker of by yourself. Just uh, rise above that possibility by paying attention. Attention to attention causes the light of language to fall into these dark uh, and unilluminated corners where infantilism is tolerated in the individual personality. To oneself has a, a kind of a morphogenic 
field affect a kind of chain reaction which sweeps through society. This is, I believe, what all these gurus are always trying to say in a somewhat, I don't know, more uh, um, concrete and, and therefore somewhat less convincing fashion. But it's simply that the act of conscious self-inspection creates more conscious people which create a more conscious society which erodes the possibility of the poisonous and toxic effects of ideology. This is what psychedelics were and are about in terms of their social position and their legal position in society. Psychedelics are illegal not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open you up to the possibility that everything you know is wrong. And, uh, you know, government and society spend a lot of money educating you into being a loyal worker, consumer, debt payer, and uh, citizen. So, if, if anarchy is to have a meaning, and I think it is the great, the great future for human society, because what it means is only responsible human beings can exist in an anarchistic society. To the degree that people are responsible, we will have anarchy. And the reason America, I believe, historically, has been so successful is because it's really a place where you can almost get away with anything. And if that is lost, if the uh, if, if monolithic ideologies uh, uh, throw a damper on that, then cultural momentum will pass to other cultures. And in fact, to some degree, I see this coming. We had a conversation with the prominent politician recently and he pointed out that uh, Japan is now the leading Western country. This indicates a cultural crisis of some depth for uh, the ideals of the American Constitution. My brother is a brain scientist at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, the crown jewel of American brain science. Everybody there is a Japanese graduate student uh, doing a work on a two-year or three-year scholarship. So, uh, but I don't see or hear a new age voice coming out of the Japanese. I think this is the cultural model that the West is uh, uniquely able to promulgate and perfect because it comes out of a rejection of the tradition of scientific materialism that we are responsible for and that we are most sophisticated about where, for instance, Japan has come fairly recently to high-tech and mass industrialization. So I, I just basically want to leave you with that. The, the notion is that nature, which is the 
topological, the linguistically expressed topological manifold of the psyche is the an historical object that is pulling us forward and that when we actually cross into the eschatology that appears fairly eminent, uh, we will find it to have been anticipated by the human relationship to nature, the embedding uh, of psyche in nature through the mysterious relationship mediated by language, and uh, the key to, uh, to unfolding a sane society, in my uh, single humble opinion, is an obligation to reason that clearly distinguishes between reason and science, an obligation to self-involvement in immediate experience, and that means psychedelics, sexuality, and what I call time, but what I really mean is a kind of deep literary involvement with the felt presence, psychedelics, sexuality, and time to empower the individual to make the individual naturally responsible to create then uh, the basis for a, uh, a caring global society that will transcend the historical cultures as though we were just moving very naturally out of winter and into spring. No apocalypse, no millennium, no rescue by flying saucers, no Mayan return, simply the unfolding of understanding in a program of mutual caring and responsibility. This is the highest aspiration of the New Age, and I feel that it is uh, attainable. So let's break, and then we'll have questions. Thank you very, very much. Okay, is there uh, any kind of response uh, to this evening's talk? Wonderful, yes. In, in my daily life, I can do a yoga practice, and I can maintain a certain amount of purity of perspective through diet and through meditation, things like that. And if I take a psychedelic drug, it makes it very difficult for me to function in the world because almost too much information is coming in in order to do so your question is how do you integrate taking psychedelics into an ordinary workaday existence well well I don't know that it is easily integrated I mean I'm not sure whether you mean you can't function while it's happening or you can't function three weeks afterwards um, the with the psychedelics, it's not a matter of high frequency, I think. The good trips are usually good for plenty of rumination for a long time. The harder the hit, the longer you want to ponder it before you go that route again. Uh, it isn't like a practice. It isn't like something you do daily. It's more like a... a uh, unique act of courage 
that arises out of the of the substratum of ordinary daily existence, whether it be uh, profane or or sacral. There really isn't an answer to your question as long as we're part of the worker anthill or living in a society which makes tremendous demands on us. Uh, it's going to be a problem. Uh, the way to take psychedelics is. Uh, you must have seen these t-shirts which say, I take drugs seriously. Well, that's the way to take them, which means rarely and at, and at substantially challenging doses <laughs> and in an atmosphere where there are no distractions. And by that, I mean, other people will say something different, but I mean no light and no sound, including music, unless you're a musician or you have some special relationship to music. But really, what you're trying to see is the, um, the, the, the surface of the brain-mind interface. And to the degree that you can create a situation of sensory deprivation, you will have a greater expectation of succeeding. Some people wouldn't dream of tripping without music, but I find that, you know, it becomes the trip. The whole thing then becomes about that piece of music where in silence it would have been equally audially interesting. So it isn't... The, the early model of the psychedelic experience was sort of that you uh, eat an orange and look at art books and listen to Bach's choral preludes. But that art historical approach to it doesn't give enough credit to the power of the substance. I mean, it can lift veil after veil in silent darkness to just catapult you into endlessly undulating uh, uh, tapestries of organic beauty, and there need be no sensory input, in fact, shouldn't be for this to happen. You had a question. I was wondering about practical sort of tips. You know, like how do you take something back? It's sort of like going to a magic kingdom and wanting to take back a gold, golden piece with you or a key or, or something, because I, I lose it. You know, and I Well, I think I sort of touched on this obliquely tonight, that attention to attention or paying attention to the nuances of cognition is a psychedelic way of being. I mean, if, if any of you are familiar with uh, Marcel Proust's uh, Recherche du Temps Perdu, he didn't take drugs except for laudanum and valerian and alcohol and absinthe and tobacco and uh, things like that. So he was drug-free and he... <coughs> he... Uh, he managed to refine, you know, this art of just the awareness of the tensions and nuances in the moment. For really, what I have come to believe about the psychedelic experience is that it is simply a compressed instance of what we call understanding, so that uh, living psychedelically is trying to live in an atmosphere of continuous unfolding of understanding so that every day you know more and see into things with greater depth 
than you did before. And this is a process, it's a process of education. What the psychedelic experience is, is it's the process of education so compressed that it has become a cascade of actual visual images, which rather than a kind of slow unfoldment of linked perceptions, but really attention to attention and appreciation of the immediate. I always think when this comes up of William Blake's advice. Blake was, as you know, a great mystical visionary English poet who spoke with angels and had these wonderful visions of of, uh, the angelic world. And he was asked what was the secret of his angelic poetry and he said attend the minute particulars that's all just attend the minute particulars that the and what he meant was to focus attention in the moment not to not to betray attention into expectation born of abstraction or regret born of misplaced assumption or of remembrance born of boredom and alienation in the moment but just to attend the minute particulars it's a way of training it's like yoga people think that psychedelic uh, psychedelics are somehow the easy way out this is what people think who wouldn't dare dream of taking one and it's not because it's the easy way out it's because they sense the the reality of it, the reality of the fact of it, and the challenge of assimilating it. I mean, uh, it's very real. It's not a metaphor. It's not an analogy. It's not a dramatic reconstruction. It is not a simulacrum. It is not a model. It is the pith essence of the thing itself. It's uh, it's real. And I don't know how many things can make that claim. I mean, everyone has a different set of experiences. My own experiences have uh, of the other, of the transcendent, naked beauty of truth, have almost all entirely come out of the psychedelic realm or out of involvement with the viscerality of my emotions. You know, the death of my mother, the birth of my children, uh, the act of marrying someone, uh, not uh, not else, but those. So I think it's uh, it's about attending the minute particulars as a kind of practice. It may not get you anywhere for several years, but if you attend the minute particulars, cultivate... Uh, an ongoing stream of self-description, telling yourself what is happening. Get used to the idea that mind can penetrate the immediate surface of being and reveal the tactile density of it as a manifold whose measure cannot be immediately taken by the eyes, that it's deep, it's connected, it's complex. Everything holds within itself the anticipation and the memory of everything else.
Yes. I guess I don't feel so optimistic. Well, it's hard to feel optimistic sometimes. It's, uh, but it's an almost like an obligation. And I think there's enough evidence around to support it. Um, if Ronald Reagan is going to begin the process of the dismantling of strategic nuclear stockpiles, then, you know, what would a civilized and humane political leader be doing in this context? So, on one level, I'm fairly cynical. I see, you know, uh, people whose major life's work has been banditry and bloody rampage getting into the history books as uh, great peacemakers. Nevertheless, I love the fact that the constraints of the situation have forced these clowns into this position. That's what I mean when I say, you know, that no political group, no faction, has its hands on the tiller of history. There is uh, an invisible hand which seems to be channeling the life of these institutions toward uh, what we deem progressive ends. And uh, not, not because these people have converted to altruism and reason and sweetness and light, but because it's a way for them to save their political ass. So it has become expedient. Peace has become politically expedient. Consequently, we shall have it, I think, in a big hurry. Now, granted, it doesn't address starvation, sexism, uh, abuses of propaganda, torture, uh, all, all of these things. But I, I feel like that there is a kind of a logjam in human affairs that formed in the late 60s where we all looked over into the future and saw what it was and the governing agencies froze with terror and attempted to halt the onrushing momentum of the 20th century to not only make psychedelic drugs illegal for the public, but to actually end scientific research into them. This is phenomenal. Scientific research is supposed to be freely pursued in any field. That's the banner under which science rides its horse. But uh, apparently this doesn't apply to hallucinogens. Uh, freezing all dialogue on disarmament, freezing all dialogue on the retraction of imperial, the projection globally of imperial power and uh, strategic stockpiles. All this was frozen in place in the late 60s, and it's only now beginning to give way. The future has a momentum that no institution can deny, and the uh, 25 years of constipated dithering that we have just come through has only meant that now the transition into the new order will be that much more sudden and that much more complete. Um, 
so I guess I am uh, I am optimistic. Uh, in, in the micro, I see many causes for pessimism, but generally I think things globally are working out fine. Now it may be, and I addressed this tonight in the talk a little bit. It may be that a sane, humane, and well-fed uh, world is coming into being, but it may not be led by the United States of America. We, muscle-bound with strategic arsenals, unable to produce things which the rest of the world wants to buy, entertaining a massive trade deficit, tolerant of uh, reactionary pseudo-religious forms of political crypto-fascism. We are... Uh, did, I hope no one's offended by that. We uh, are not exactly in the best position to, uh, to lead the charge into this great and glorious future. A society with a tradition of resource management like Japan is perhaps in a much better position although then there are other problems Japan speaks a language no one understands it's going to be quite a world if the power of the projection of the Japanese cultural self-image is to become so overwhelming that Japanese is to become the dominant language of the West although this is a possibility certainly if any of you are familiar with the fiction of William Gibson uh, and if you're not, I urge it upon you. This is some of the most exciting science fiction being written. He pictures a world where Japanese cultural dominance, I would say, is a, a primary factor. So yes, I'm optimistic. Uh, we have to be. It's the only game in town. And look at the opportunities. It's simply a matter of insisting on human values garnered from the felt experience of the moment and holding back the toxic effects of ideology. In other words, this anarchic prescription that I sort of put forth this evening, mainly holding back the toxic effects of ideology because then we can create a sane world if we just uh, recognize that pragmatism love for each other and a reasonable amount of goodwill uh, will do quite nicely I think if the shriller voices the ideologically driven voices can be uh, made uh, déclassé not repressed just simply recognized as tasteless you know <laughs> anything else yes <coughs> Could you uh, reflect on uh, what culture will be like after the end of time? Uh, and uh, what, what the end of time has to do with what you said tonight? What kind of time? Yeah, the different kinds of time? or? Well, yeah, I've certainly I've reflected on what it's like. It's sort of a blank screen on which to project your mind. What will it be like once we pass the omega point? I'm not really sure. I mean, there, it you can take two approaches to it. You can take the sort of the deus ex machina approach, which means we can't know what it is because it's going to be so wonderful. It's going to be like uh, uh, the descent of the flying saucers and we will all march into the four-gated city and that will be it. Or you can take a 
more conservative approach and say, well, maybe there's something going on in the trends around us that we can extrapolate to try and understand the world beyond the end of time. Taking that approach, what I think is happening, and it's been happening for a long time, and it's very interesting, is that culture, culture is another dimension that, uh, and perhaps properly so. In the early part of my talk, I talked about how culture had uh, subsumed the position of nature so that we had lost sight of nature by erecting culture through uh, erecting these linguistic structures. But I noticed that, uh, and not only linguistic structures, but architectural structures, the infrastructure of our society, that is what culture is. The way we differ from the Witoto is all the stuff that we have bound into ideas and excreted through our engineering processes to surround ourselves with. this this dimension, which is culture, is becoming ever more all-inclusive at the same time that it's also becoming, strangely enough, ever more ethereal, ever less material. Uh, a perfect example of this, I don't know how many of you are, are familiar with it, but if you deal with the Macintosh computer, the operating system of the Mac is the genius of it and what makes it the best in the biz is that it attempts to trick you into believing that you're dealing with ordinary three-dimensional space. You know, you don't type in commands, you don't choose printed options, you move in a symbolic representation of three-dimensional space. Well, again, to mention William Gibson and his novels, what he imagines is simply a larger version of this conventionalized uh, symbolic representation of three-dimensional space so that you enter in his novels, his characters, enter into a world where the Bank of America database is perceived as a huge red rectangle hundreds of feet in height in a certain spot in the memory of this global computer and and near, yes it's cyberspace and near it is the memory bank of wells fargo or something else so that when you enter into cyberspace ordinary reality is replaced by a symbolic representation of the informational content of ordinary reality well this is in fact happening uh it's happening at a very rapid rate so the dimension which we call culture, which we have previously uh, erected in the three-dimensional world around us through the intercession of what we call manufacturing and architecture, is very rapidly being internalized and erected as cyberspace, this alternative dimension to ordinary three-dimensional space in which our minds are able to move like fish in water. What I think lies beyond uh, the end of time is a very concrete realization of this other dimension. That's why 
things like the time wave that I've developed and some of these other projections run off the scale. The world beyond the end of history is literally not mappable in the lower order set of mapping that are applicable to history. So it is like being downloaded into circuitry. Uh, it's possible to conceive of the entire human species fitting into uh, the area of a large uh, refrigerator in, in cyberspace so that the goal of history is the creation of a mirror image of culture in the cyberspatial dimension so that culture in the dimension of nature can be slowly retracted, slowly retracted into the compressed quintessence. You can almost think of this as an alchemical process. We're talking about forging a philosopher's stone out of a hyperdimensional medium which is composed of energy and language and into which we can all cast ourselves at will. It is, you know, Plato said if God didn't exist, man would invent him, her, it. Well, it may well be that uh, the pilot's seat, the pilot's chair of the flying saucer is empty. It awaits mankind. It is the condensed expectation of complete interpenetration of all of us through each other and our cultural artifact in a mode that we cannot even imagine. At an earlier talk at Will's here a couple of years ago, I did a talk called Shedding the Monkey, in which I talked about dropping uh, the primate image that is projected onto the human soul through, through the accidents of biological evolution. That as we take control of our genetic heritage, as we take control of the process of manufacturing culture, we are going to become what we dream we are. And we have never really explored consciously what it is we dream we are. But very shortly, this will become a major part of the cultural agenda because we are going to be able to do anything. And uh, with that kind of power, again recurring to the theme of the evening, I think we have to anchor ourselves in nature. So sort of my apothe uh, apotheosis or my vision of of how this should come to be is that everyone is given uh, you know their own 500 acres of paradise in the chip <laughs> and that is your heritage your space your right place to be and out of the mellowness which accrues only to the very wealthy which we will then, each and every one of us, fall into that category, we will be able to return to the dimension of the limited pie and very decorously and thoughtfully apportion it out in a sane and rational matter. So, manner. So, uh, 
and it's very very tricky see this rush toward the ability to completely realize the self-image in hyperspace my mother used to say to me when I was a small child if wishes were horses beggars would ride and I think that that's the dream to turn wishes into horses that beggars may ride and it's that world where we each get our own horse or when our ship comes in that lies uh, beyond the historical dimension because it's where we in effect each becomes all and then is freed into the imagination of the oversoul to create whatever castles in the imagination seem most pleasing it's the triumph of art art in the imagination and reverence for nature in the uh, in the placental dimension which is the life support system for this fantastic indulgence in the uh, in the uh, expression of the imagination yeah Toxicity of ideology. I'm, I'm an educator. I educate young children, and I just like you to address what we can do, uh, or what your ideas about what uh, society can do, so that we don't have to undo it at some point. I mean, and most of us here has to kind of undo what we went through as children in public education, anyway. Um, so that we, we could at least come to some level of awareness or uh, peacefulness within ourselves. What is the positive side of it? What is your... Uh, uh well, in Hawaii this past year, we homeschooled our children, and we also coincidentally rented office space from a major company which creates homeschooling curriculums. And on their letterhead, they had the motto you are your child's best teacher and uh, we found out how hard it is to live up to that ideal and yet in a way we also found out how rewarding it was to attempt it uh, when we return to Northern California our children will go to public school uh, I think basically y you have to just you have to not leave it up to the school you have to check in on what's going on and uh, input into the process I don't I don't feel that I can give a very deep answer to this I think it's one of the most perplexing problems one thing I think that's terribly wrong with education is that there is no sense of history instilled in people and uh, history has almost as bad a rap on it as mathematics and yet these are the two modes of thought which I think would do the most to anchor us because they both are about uh, different forms of grounding one grounds in eternal demonstrable principles mathematics and the other uh, dissipates amnesia it's a very weird thing that somebody can't tell you isn't quite clear on whether event X happened in the 13th or the 16th century 
I mean, after all, 13th, 16th, 19th, how would you like to be, uh, you know, so imprecisely perceived in somebody's mind that they couldn't get within 300 years of where you lived and died? Uh, so the lack of a sense of history makes us really prey to manipulation. That's why I, I am cynical enough to believe that the de-emphasizing of history that's gone on in American education over the past 30 years is almost the equivalent of a plot. The notion, you know, even as recently as when I graduated from the university, and it took me 12 years, so I didn't graduate until 75, but the idea was that if you went to a university, you emerged uh, a, a liberal gentle person in well informed on the accomplishments of your culture its history its aspirations its ways of governing itself its ways of resolving conflict and so on now i think people emerge these things have become gigantic trade schools and you are not you are expected to learn to do a job and when not doing your job malls have been provided for you to shop in and uh, 240 channels of garbage have been piped into your home for you to keep up on what it is that is au courant to go out and buy and this creation of this historyless uh, mindless consumerist person at the expense of the democratic, of the ideal of the democratically informed citizen is going to wreck great havoc in our society. Uh, people often compliment me on, you know, the, my enchanting command of these various subjects and so forth and so on. And I'm amazed because what's being sold to you here tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is nothing more than the fruits of a liberal college education, you know? You go to college, you learn about Gnosticism, Platonic philosophy, or you once did, but no more, apparently. So it can be sold as the most far-out, fringy thing in the new age. This is, this is, his, this is amnesia on, on quite a scale. So, uh, and the other thing I would say in answer to your question about education is, uh, is uh, separating physical culture from competition. That the notion of physical culture, and by that I mean gym class, and competition is one of the, I mean, I'm, I'm, now I feel the bile rising. This is, uh, we're talking serious here now. But saving people from the grief of PE is, I think, a, a major way to heal the culture. When, when we were living in Hawaii, Cat uh, asked our son, how did he think of himself? And he said he thought of himself as an artist and an athlete. And I thought that this was just an amazing breakthrough because I thought of myself as uh, uh, you know, a sort of 95-pound weakling, and uh, the notion that my son could be physically just like I was at his age 
and yet conceive of himself as an athlete and have this balanced view of art, athlete, uh, junior scientist, and so forth, meant we must be doing something right. And what it is, is stressing physical culture, being in the ocean, hiking, running, skateboarding, biking, all these things, without the notion of males crashing against each other for the purposes of racking up points with females and elders to lay the groundwork for the whole imposition of the alpha male primate hierarchy that makes society such a mess. So that's that for education. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. You know, I always learn something new when I listen to one of Terence's lectures, and this talk was no exception, but uh, one of the little factoids I picked up just now was that it took Terence 12 years to graduate from college. Now, uh, that should be encouraging to any professional students who might hear it, although uh, I'm sure it'll also strike fear in the hearts of parents who are worrying about paying for their child's college education. And uh, again, I feel that I should add my two cents about uh, Terence's comment that uh, ayahuasca doesn't speak, it shows. Well, I'm here to tell you that uh, when she wants to, Mother Ayahuasca can uh, speak quite clearly, and uh, she has done so to me on many occasions. And while there have been a few occasions where she also showed me something, what I consider to be uh, visions, while under the influence of ayahuasca, actually come to me in the form of a conversation, not images. So, for what it's worth, uh, once again, my suggestion is that uh, should you ever have an opportunity to participate in an authentic ayahuasca circle, that uh, you keep an open mind and have absolutely no preconceived ideas about what the experience may actually be for you, because uh, I've found that uh, no two of those trips are ever the same. For sure, it's a, a tricky substance to learn how to use, but once you get it down, I've found that it can uh, be extremely rewarding. And how about that phrase that Terence used just now? The toxicity of ideology. In other words, uh, be careful about what you wind up believing because uh, it most definitely precludes you from uh, even exploring the opposite point of view. And uh, there may be something of value in looking at things from a different direction. As he said just now, uh, perhaps we are at last uh, uh, approaching a watershed moment like uh, what took place after uh, 150 years of religious wars in Europe when the populace more or less just uh, lost interest in fighting over whose version of Christianity was more correct. But speaking of intelligent discourse, I would like to point you to an interview of my friend and uh, fellow podcaster KMO. As you know, KMO has uh, been conducting interviews for the past several years now and has recorded some of the best conversations I've heard since uh, Terrence left this mortal coil and uh, now he is uh, being interviewed himself on the Diet Soap podcast number 22. And after listening to that program, I listened to uh, some of the earlier shows, and now I'm hooked. It's, uh, it's an excellent new podcast, and uh, if you get a chance, you might want to check it out yourself. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, either this week or next, KMO will be playing an interview that I did with him uh, a few days ago. 
Also, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention all of the most excellent podcasts over at dopefiend.co.uk. Knowing uh, how difficult it is to get a program out each and every week, uh, which I haven't been able to do myself, uh, well, that makes the Dope Fiend's accomplishment all the more amazing to me. Even though I'm no longer commuting to work each week, uh, nonetheless, when I wake up on a Monday morning, I still get that sinking feeling that I used to get when I was a working stiff. But then I remember that the Dope Fiend will have a new podcast waiting for us when we get up on this side of the Atlantic each Monday. And uh, knowing that I'll soon be joining him and his friends for another rollicking adventure in cannabis land just uh, makes it a lot easier to face a new week. And uh, KMO, by the way, is uh, just as regular with his programs, uh, which means that I don't feel as bad about uh, publishing my own podcasts on a more irregular schedule since uh, we have some regular people among us. And uh, speaking of my schedule, I do hope to get another program out near the end of next week, uh, depending on how much recovery time I'll need after this weekend's symbiosis gathering. Once again, uh, we are going to attempt to record some of the talks that will be given this weekend, and uh, if the goddess so chooses, we'll uh, hear a few of them here in the salon in the months ahead. Now, I know that I'll be seeing some of our fellow saloners at Symbiosis, and if you're planning on attending yourself, I'd love to meet you. On uh, Saturday, I'll be emceeing the talks in the village area, and I plan on camping near John Hanna, who will be there with the Arrowwood crew. So uh, you should be able to find their sign somewhere around the village as well. And for those of you who happen to be on the other side of the continent right now, there is also a conference coming up at the end of this month that you may be interested in. It's the Horizons Perspectives on Psychedelics Conference that will be held on September 25th, 26th, and 27th of this year at the Judson Memorial Church in New York. Now, I've heard from quite a few fellow saloners who have attended a Horizons event in the past, and they all rave about it. So uh, this year, some of the speakers include Alicia Danforth, who uh, will also be speaking at Symbiosis, by the way. Uh, Earth and Fire Arrowwood will be speaking there, as will Robert Jesse. William Richards will be there uh, speaking about his latest research, as will uh, Franz Bolenweider, among others. And... Uh, if you aren't familiar with those names, you may want to go to the Horizons website and read a little about their backgrounds. Uh, some of the top names in psychedelic research will be there, and uh, you no doubt will also be able to find a few of the others there as well. And now I've got to get out of here and uh, repack my camping gear that I kind of left in a mess in the garage since returning from the Oracle Gathering. And uh, so I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and uh, almost all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. If you have any questions about that, uh, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.